Another word for that is uh, old. <laughs> so, well, um, I'm going to share the word with you this morning, but we, I thought I could just give you a, a little brief introduction as to what's happening in our lives, in our children's lives. You know, this is Father's Day, so we have to talk about our children. We can't have them standing around us because uh, they're, they're getting old, too. Um, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't try to hold them in my arms at this point. <laughs> anyway, just let us just share a few things about what's happening right now. And this part we're going to do reading because if otherwise we talk too long, so we're sticking to our script. Diane and I teach at the Faculté de Théologie Évangélique de l'Alliance Chrétienne in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire. Can you say that, Joel? <laughs> In English, we call it the West Africa Alliance Seminary. I teach New Testament classes, while Deanna teaches spiritual formation and Bible courses in the women's section. One of my students, Thomas Seri, recently asked me to come and preach at his church on Easter Sunday. I taught on the resurrection, of course, and shared a little of my personal testimony of how I came to the Lord when one of my best friends was miraculously healed by the power of the risen Lord. And he's here this morning. That's Rob over here. Say hi, <laughs> Rob. Toward the end of the message, my voice gave out, and I turned the service back over to Pastor Sari to give the altar call. Around a dozen young people gave their lives to Christ that morning. This picture reflects the paradigm of our missionary career for the last 32 years. And now at Fatiak, our voice is not sufficient to meet the need. So we teach others, entrusting what we have learned to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. This does not mean, you want to do the, you switch. Okay. This does not mean that we stop doing evangelism. I taught evangelistic English classes for three years in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. One of my students, Umar Bermonet, came to the Lord through this ministry. He was a Muslim of Muslim background, and he is now studying economics in Massachusetts with the goal of returning to help his native Burkina Faso. I also taught at the Institut Missiologique du Sahel, training missions, mobilizers, and missionaries for French-speaking Africa. One of my students was Félix Dembélé. He came from Mali, and he has now returned to witness for Christ in Jenne, one of the greatest Muslim strongholds in West Africa. Oops, switch back. Our burden is to train leaders for all of French-speaking Africa. We've already mentioned how our ministries have touched the lives of people in Côte d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, and Mali. Our current student body at Fatiak is composed of students from nine different countries and 16 different denominations. It's almost impossible to overemphasize the need for leadership training in sub-Saharan Africa. God has done great things in Africa. Through power encounters, mass people movements have ushered hundreds of thousands into the kingdom. There are literally hundreds of thousands of African Christians in need of discipleship and training. We at Fatiak are working to meet that need. Graduates from Fatiak continue their ministries in countries all over Africa. The chain of faithful witnesses does not end with our students. Fatiak provides teachers for eight Bible schools in the CNMA alone. Our students continue to entrust what they have learned to faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. 
We consider it a wonderful privilege to work with this great team of teachers and students training Christian leaders for Africa's future. And we would like to thank you as well for your part in this ministry, both for your prayers and generous gifts. You're a very important part of our ministry. We also want to tell a little update on our kids. This is Father's Day, so we're allowed to do that. Um, Christy and Peter are now working in the Horn of Africa. Oh, Christy got married last summer, so that's her husband, and her and her husband work in the Horn of Africa, doing um, community development among Somalian refugees. Daniel and Kim are now working in the Middle East, and on our way home from Cote d'Ivoire, we were able to go and visit with them. This is a family Harrison reunion, Harrison family reunion. (laughs) Um, I did just want to say very uh, quickly, it was a real privilege to get to go to the Middle East. We'd been to Africa, of course, for years, but this was different, and... um, Okay, this is not going to be easy, but um, it's, there's a lot happening in the Middle East. And as we speak, uh, co-workers um, are kidnapped, and they don't know if they're dead or alive. And I, you know, can't, of course, can't give details, but um, I have had to get on my knees and repent for my flippant attitude to my parents when I headed off to deepest darkest Africa. Now, again, we get the privilege of handing our children over to the Lord, knowing that they're in very dangerous places, but trusting that God is honoring um, their faithfulness. And I got to learn to wear a burqa, and no no bad hair days. It's great. Um, This is our daughter, Rachel, our youngest. She's at Simpson University. Um, Every time we talk to her, she's having so much fun. So um, she says she's preparing for ministry. We think she's getting a BA in fun, but um, she has a heart for orphans in Africa. And um, we just want to real quickly say that this year is our home assignment. It's been five years since we've lived, you know, for a year in the States. And we have been asked to be missionaries and residents at Simpson University, the same school where Rachel is um, studying. And we will be teaching classes on missions and doing missions mobilization uh, attempting to um, to motivate young college students to give their lives for missions also. So uh, we thank you for our prayers, your prayers. I, I know it's Father's Day, and... Um, Bill said, you know, I don't need to feel constrained to, to speak, uh, to give a message on Father's Day. Um, we, we got to talking about our memories of Father's Day. You know, you have Mother's Day, and uh, the preacher tells you how wonderful all the mothers are. And then you have Father's Day. And um, his memory was that uh, you heard how wonderful all the mothers were. My memory was you heard how crummy all the fathers were. Um, I don't want to do that. I know that statistically we're doing a pretty bad job. But I believe that there are, uh, are a lot of good fathers in this congregation. Keep up the good work. Um, it's not an easy job. And uh, I think there's a lot of people that are really trying to raise their children for Christ. 
and you got the proof of it here. Um, just one other thing, you know, how many of you uh, men have read Love Comes Softly? <laughs> how many of you women have read Love Comes Softly? Quite a few more. Um, this is what we fathers are up against. Um, Love Comes Softly, I read it. Um, Anyway, it's, it's kind of typical of a lot of these uh, Christian novels. The, the women are normal. They have problems, and they overcome these problems. Clark, in Love Comes Softly, is perfect. He never makes a mistake. He understands his wife uh, even before she says anything. He always does the right thing. He's perfect. And so... Um, you have to remind your wife sometimes, I'm not Clark. <laughs> there is no way I'm ever going to measure up to Clark. I mean, it's hard enough to get up in this pulpit and realize, you know, that there was a Bill Sanders here for many, many years, and I will never be as romantic as Bill Sanders. <laughs> you know, it's just not in my DNA. It's just not going to work, you know, or... Um, you know, and then everybody listens to Dobson, and I will never be as wise as James Dobson in raising my children. So the, the bar is set so high for Christian men that sometimes you could get discouraged. But I want to encourage you, keep up the good work. You're doing a good job. Um, I want to talk this morning about our relationship to the Father. And I want to look at a couple of uh, passages on prayer. I hesitate to do that because I know I'm not the greatest prayer warrior around. Um, I, I often say uh, that God has blessed my ministry because somebody else is praying for me because God knows I neglected enough. Um, I know that uh, God is faithful, but I, I, I do feel like, you know, us teachers, we may have something to say about it sometimes when we're not even at the best at doing it. And there's two passages I want to read today because I believe there's some popular teaching that inhibit prayer, that make it more difficult to pray. And so I want to, I want to talk about these two prayer inhibitors. Uh, one is an un unbalanced emphasis on human faith, and the other is an unbalanced emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And the first passage I want to read is in Luke chapter 11. And I want to read the first 13 verses. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we also have forgiven everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and have nothing set to set before him. I guess they didn't have freezers. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, 
Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I want to look at a couple of themes in this passage. I'm not going to belabor the point. The first theme is the theme of relationship. Relationship is the key uh, to the entire passage. First of all, you have, have the Lord's Prayer. This is the short version. That's probably the one I prefer, you know, short prayers. Um, the Lord's Prayer begins with our Father. We have so often prayed the Lord's Prayer and spoke to God as Father that we don't realize how radical this is. Uh, people who live in uh, Muslim countries know how radical it is. To call God Father is blasphemous, unimaginable. He's too far beyond us, too much unlike us for us to call him Father. The Old Testament, uh, you know, you don't see God as Father in the Old Testament. And when Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father who is in heaven. It is so radical that we have this relationship with God, who is our Heavenly Father. Unfortunately, uh, many people, that discolors the image of God, because they haven't had good fathers. But for many of us who have had good fathers, that's a beautiful image, to realize that we have a person, a God, who cares for us, and whom we can approach without fear, and give him our requests. The, the second image that I find here is the image of a friend. You have somebody arrive at night, and you go to your friend's house and ask, can I have three loaves of bread? Now, in some ways, this is a negative image because the guy doesn't want to give it at first, and, and, but eventually he does. And this is the image also that God is our friend and a better friend than this neighbor. Then again, he returns to the image of father. That if a son asks for something that's bad, the father, if something that's good, the father's not going to give him something that's bad. That the father knows how to give good things. The father knows how to give what is right for his children. The second theme that I see in this passage is the theme of perseverance. In verse 2, Luke 11.2, we have, when you pray. This when you pray, the, the word when, is a temporal particle. I teach Greek, so, hey, got to say some things. Pertaining to an action that is conditional, possible, and many instances repeated. You can translate this word whenever. Whenever you pray. Now, I'm not one of those people that likes to repeat the Lord's Prayer often. I think it's more of a model. That's why you have two versions of it. How, how else do you know which one you're supposed to repeat all the time? Uh, it's a model for us. 
whenever you pray, pray like this. And we've got a number of subjects that, that we can use. This prayer, as all of us know, is not something you just pray one time. It's continuous. We keep coming back to God and praying the same things. We persevere. We persist in that. The second image here of appealing to the friend also has an image of perseverance. And there's a word there they don't quite know how to translate because normally it should be translated shamelessness. Because of his shamelessness, um, he will finally give up and give the bread. He will finally give him whatever he needs because of his shamelessness. And the best way I could think of translating it would be shameless persistence. You know, it doesn't seem right that he would just keep bugging this friend and keep on doing it, even though it's, he's obviously, the friend has said, hey, this is too much, uh, uh, too much of uh, a burden. This is, I, I don't really want to give up and get up and give this to you. And he persists in asking, even though it seems inappropriate. Um, and I think sometimes uh, we, we have that feeling that when we're praying, I've prayed this so many times, it just seems inappropriate to keep praying. Um, if we look a little further, you have the words in verse 9, Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Here's another Greek lesson that you've probably heard in this church more than once. Those verbs there are what they call present imperatives, which means they're continuous. You don't just pray once. You could translate this verse, ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking. Again, the theme of persevering, of persistence in prayer, following the example of the neighbor who persisted to ask for bread. That God encourages us to persist in praying to him and asking and seeking and knocking. Um, I asked my question, myself this question, and I've asked myself several times, why? Why does God want us to persist in prayer? Why not just give the answer right away? I've got some news for you this morning. The Bible doesn't tell us why. He just encourages us to do it. And we can guess at why. Uh, my best guess is that it's related to the first theme. Relationship. That prayer is not just asking and getting a response, but prayer is a relationship. And when my children would ask me for things, most of the time I would say the best answer was neither yes or no, but let's talk about it. Um, why do you want this? Uh, is this really the best way to handle this? Is this the best thing that we can do? And I would want them to talk about it. And I would want them to share with me. And then I would want to give them some principles and talk about some things that, that they needed to understand about whatever it was they wanted. And they just loved me for that. Um, I can't really say for God, but I have a feeling that's part of it. I had one person explain it to me. Well, you ask, and of course you're going to ask what you, what you think is the best thing. 
And you've got to keep on asking. And at the same time, you've got, to keep, you've got to seek and keep on seeking. And what you're seeking is to know what's, what's God's best. What does God want in all this? And then when you find that out, then you can knock and the door will be open. Somebody explained it to me that way. Sounded good to me. I can't tell you that's exactly right. Because the passage, Jesus just always likes to teach in, in an enigmatic way and leave it up to us to discover what he wants us to know. And so uh, I, can, I can tell you that these principles are there, but I can't tell you the five steps and how to, how to do it. It's something that he wants us to learn in relationship with him. The climax of this passage is different in Matthew and in Luke. Um, after giving these examples that, you know, if your son asks for something good, you're not going to give him a scorpion. You're not going to give him something bad. And then he said, if you then being evil, I said, thanks, God. Um, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's what it says here in Luke. Matthew says, how much more will he give good things to those who ask him? In the preceding verses that we read, it says, ask and it will be given you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to, for everyone who, receive, who asks receives. And then he says in here, those who... Uh, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. I believe the same perseverance is encouraged here in this prayer for the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense in a lot of our theologies because we have Pauline theology. Paul said, didn't he, that he who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, Romans 8, 9. And that we have... Uh, have the seal of the Holy Spirit when we, we become believers. So how, why would you keep persevering in prayer about the Holy Spirit when you already have the Holy Spirit? Well, our response to that in charismatic circles is he's uh, not talking about actual reception of the Holy Spirit here, but the receiving of the Pentecostal gift of the Holy Spirit of the, the filling of the Holy Spirit or baptism in the Holy Spirit. A lot of terminology that you can use and we, we use it without, uh, often without looking at the context. But you'll have to read my book if you want to know the context for all those things. It doesn't exist yet, but maybe it'll be out there someday. Unless you want to read 400 pages in French, it does exist in French. Um, I'll, let, I'll loan a copy to you later, Joel. Um, <laughs> He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask and keep on asking. At some point, I don't know who brought this teaching into charismatic circles, but I heard a, I heard a teaching, and it never struck me as being right. And I, now I have this passage, I can, I can speak against it. And that was, you only need to pray one time. And then by faith, you just believe it. Um... I believe God gives that kind of faith. That you pray for something and supernaturally God blesses you with the faith and you, don't, you just don't need to pray for it anymore. You know that God's answer is there. I believe God gives that kind of faith from time to time. But that's not what we read in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts we find in chapter 1 and verse 14 
that they were persevering in prayer. Now, if Jesus had told them to pray for the Holy Spirit, and then if um, he said that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be endued with power and you'll be my witnesses, and that comes immediately after they just blew it royally. They had the opportunity to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, and instead of witnessing, they denied Christ. Peter denied Christ. The disciples are... uh, in, in, a, in a room hiding. I think what they're doing there is praying for the Holy Spirit. When they're persevering in prayer. It's what Jesus taught them to do. It's what they're doing. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. They're empowered, and we see the empowered witness. Well, why am I talking about something like that, that, that here? We all have the Holy Spirit here, aren't, don't we? We're all filled with the Spirit I'd like to just keep talking about this and keep talking about this until we realize that we need to keep praying about this. Um, We need to keep praying that the power of the Spirit will empower us to such an extent that people keep coming to Jesus. Um, Peter and John got thrown into prison. For preaching. You know, they got empowered, right? They preached and, and, and there was miracles. And then people were coming to the Lord and they got thrown in jail. They get released from jail. They go to a prayer meeting. And what do they pray? How about chapter 4? Acts chapter 4. I didn't plan on reading this, but I think I will. Remember, these are people that are filled with the Spirit... And they continue to pray. Acts 4. I believe it's verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and protect us. Is that what your Bible reads? Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's not about us. It's not about us being able to say we have this gift or that gift or our church functions in the gifts. We believe in the gifts. It's not about us. It's about those people that need to hear the word of God and need to have proof that it is the word of God. And we need to just keep praying. We may have seen people come to Christ through miracles. We started interviewing our students at at the seminary. Now, the ones that grew up in Christian families... A lot of them came to the Lord through the witness of their friends, their parents, people in their church. They heard a message. They saw an example of a Christian life, and they came to the Lord. People that are outside of church, there's a few like that. But the vast majority of the people I interviewed in our our seminary, if they were Muslim or if they were animists before, they came to the Lord through a dream, a vision, or a miracle. 
vast majority, rarely do they come to the Lord just because someone shared a message with them. And America is getting less and less of a Christian perspective. Less and less people know the Word of God and believe in the Word of God, and more and more people need to have the proof. And that's not up to us. We can't give them the proof. Only God can do that. And the only thing we can do about it is pray. And we need to keep doing that. One more passage, and that is in Genesis. And I want to read uh, one verse. It's Genesis uh, chapter 18, verse 22. And then I'll share briefly a, a summary of the, what follows. Chapter 18, verse 22. The men turned away and went toward Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. This is when Abraham received these guests. Um, he saw these three men who were there, and he invited them to stay and eat. And lo and behold, they're angels. Um, and so they remained with Abraham, and then it says two of them went on towards Sodom, and one remained. And the one who remains is the Lord. I can't hardly fathom that, you know, uh, that the Lord's there speaking with Abraham. And my text reads, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Does everybody else have that text, or is there someone here who has a different translation of that? Anybody have the New American Bible? No? Yeah, but I you haven't got there yet. Okay. I think it's in the New American Bible where it says, but the Lord remained standing before Abraham. Then if the bottom of the page, there's a note there. Verse 22, Masoretic text, an ancient Hebrew scribal tradition, but the Lord remained standing before. Uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but um, here's what happened. The Masoretes were the scribes who transcribed this text for us, and they made copies of it. And when they got to this verse, they said, that can't be right. It cannot be that the Lord remained standing before Abraham. That would be disrespectful. That would be unimaginable. Because this position of remaining standing before someone is the position of a slave, of a servant. And we cannot put God in the position of a servant. It has to be Abraham remain standing uh, before the Lord. And so the Masoretes uh, changed the text. They did it 18 times in the Old Testament. Only 18 times because they were so afraid to do this. They are so afraid to change the text. And then when they do that, they put a, a note at the bottom, at the side, or I can't remember if it's at the side or at the bottom, but anyway, they put a note there saying, uh, original text, uh, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. We don't have any texts that actually say, and Abraham remained standing before the Lord. The original text said this, and no Jew would ever make that change in the opposite direction. So I, I think our translation is wrong here. 
and it should read with the New American Bible, uh, the Lord remained standing before Abraham. The Lord took the position of a servant. And I get this picture, it's like, come on Abraham, I'm waiting. Are you going to pray or not? I'm ready to answer. Would you please pray? That's the picture I get in this passage. And that's why I think Abraham had such boldness when he prayed. Do you remember the prayer? He says, now, now Lord, I know you said you're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but what if there are 50 righteous people there? Would you destroy that city even though there are 50 righteous people? And then you get a math lesson. What if there are five less and there's only 45 or 40 or 30 or 20? And finally he gets down to 10 people and the Lord says, even if there are 10 righteous people, I will not destroy the city. Abraham's boldness, I believe, comes from the disposition of the Lord before him. He can see that the Lord is wanting to answer his prayer and just waiting for him to pray. That's an image that we don't often see when we read the scriptures. An image of our Father who's just waiting to do good. I say there's popular teaching in some places that's given the image that really God's going to do just whatever he needs to do anyway. Everything is predetermined and God's going to do everything. And if, you know... To me, that's an inhibitor to prayer. Because God actually determines some of the things he does by what we pray. He's all-powerful. Don't get me wrong. He can do whatever he wants. He's not limited to us. But a lot of times, he waits on us. And the Bible says that we can even hasten the day of our Lord's coming. And I think the only way you can do that is by obeying him and preaching the gospel and by praying. We can actually hasten the day of his Lord's coming. Jesus can come back sooner if we get the job done sooner. God waits for us and wants us to pray. I want, I want that image to be burned into your heads. This idea of prayer, of what we're doing, it does make a difference. It's not as if God is up there and saying, I'm, I'm ruling everything, I want everything, everything is going to turn out just this way, but you go ahead and pray, because, you know, that's a good thing for you to do. That is not the image that you find in the Bible. All throughout the Bible, you have people who pray, and things that change, people that change, answers, miracles, that occur because God's people pray. And we need to understand this, that our prayers make a difference. Um, let's look at uh, the answer to Abraham's prayer. Well, you know what happened. You know how the angels went to Sodom. Um, uh, Lot protected them. The, the people were evil. Lot protected them. And, and then uh, the, the angels said, uh, Lot, you've got to leave. Take your children and leave because uh, we've got to destroy this place. And the pe- they didn't want to leave. And finally, uh, almost by force, the angel takes them out of the city uh, along with uh, his, his children, his wife, and, and uh, then he destroys the city. I want you to look at this from Abraham's perspective first. That's in chapter 19, 
verse 27 and 28. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord, or before the Lord stood before him. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. That's Abraham's perspective. You know, I, I looked after there to see if Lot is mentioned and Abraham together or something after this. And nowhere in the rest of the text do we find that Abraham ever had any other indication that God had answered his prayer after this. He got up the next morning and all he saw was the smoke. The smoke of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. For all he knows, God did not answer his prayer. Verse 29 gives God's perspective. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God brought out the one righteous man. Abraham had only prayed that it God not destroyed if there were ten righteous men. And there were not ten righteous. But God brought out the one righteous person. The one righteous person God brought out, along with his family, whom we don't know if they're righteous or not. God answered his prayer. We don't often get to see the answers to our prayer. Often, we don't know. We're like Abraham. We, all we see is the smoke. But we need to trust God that he's still working. And that's, that's an act of faith. That's something that we, we have to depend on God. Occasionally, he lets us see. I have a feeling if he always let us see, we'd, we'd get the big head. Uh, we say, boy, am I in touch with God. I've got a direct line just give me your prayer requests and you'll see it happen. In fact, I've heard some preachers that sound like that sometimes. But God is at work. God listens. God wants to hear our prayers. He's ready and waiting to hear our prayers. And if we're ready to, to, to pray to him, he does answer. He doesn't always let us know what he's done. But he does answer. I'll... Um, close with uh, an illustration that I got out of a book. This is not my illustration. And it's an illustration from uh, Wycliffe. Um, I know it's not my mission, but hey. On November 14th, uh, 1983, two American students named David and Ray teamed up to pray for the 40,000 Tira people in northern Sudan in Africa. The large group had no Bible in their native tongue. Two and a half years later, other Christians, Jerry and Jan, joined them in praying daily for the Tira. Then in March 1990, Jane and Marjean, I hope I pronounced her name right, wrote to the Bibleless People, People's Prayer Project of Wycliffe Bible Translators, asking for the name of a, of a Bibleless people to pray for. They too began praying. In August 1990, we heard that Avajani, a young Tira man, was beginning to translate the Bible. 
I have his picture here. I'm, I didn't put it on my computer, though. So this is Avajani. You see Avajani? You can, you can look at his picture later. It's not the greatest picture. Uh, I'm sure he looks better than my copy of him. Great news. We wrote telling him of those praying and how he was an answer to their prayers. I'm grateful, Avajani wrote back. I've never known that there were teams praying for the Tira people. It is wonderful news to me. The same year and month when David and Ray started praying, I got saved. When Jerry and Jan began praying, I was accepted for theological studies. And now I have finished, and now I have finished. Jane and Marjean can praise the Lord with me too. In March 1990, a miracle happened. I met a man, a Wycliffe translator, who was able to arrange for me to study biblical translation principles and linguistics. Each, each step in his life was at the point when one of these couples started praying. And none of them knew. Today they know. On February 18th of this year, the New Testament in Tira was delivered and they had their dedication service in northern Sudan for these 40,000 people who, who can now read the New Testament in their language. And that was made possible through people who prayed. I guess you know the, all this. I'm preaching to the choir. But the good thing when you preach to the choir is they like to hear it. So God bless you. I, I can't tell you how much we appreciate the fact that you pray for us. Um, I, I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt. Uh, I, one, I probably wouldn't even be here. And two, I know I wouldn't have an effective ministry if it wasn't for the body of believers praying for me. And we need to pray. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray for the impact that you have in this community and for the Lord's help in that. We need a lot of help. And thank you for praying for us, and may you continue to pray do so. We have some cards here. Did you mention this earlier? I don't think you did. Anyway, pick up a card, and I tell people, put it where you're going to see it. If it has to be on your television set, do it. But pray for us, please. God bless you.